good morning again. If you're wondering what should I do with this form, I want to let people know that I'm coming. There's a couple of things you can do. You can fill it out. You can drop it in the offering box in the back. Or you can hand it to one of the deacons on the way out. If you can't find one of them, just stick it on the table just outside these doors so that we can collect them today and have an idea. So just make sure we have it for me today. We'd love to see all of you there. And as Brian said, even if you're not in a position you can bring anything, you can bring yourself. And so come and have fellowship with us as we'll have a time of singing and testimonies and a fun time together as the family of God as we celebrate Thanksgiving. Well, in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, after hearing a great statement of faith from Peter the Apostle, Jesus declared, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And from there he took, after a time in Caesarea Philippi, he took the disciples to Galilee and Capernaum, where he spent a time of training and instruction and encouragement and edification, perhaps a time of rest, as they get ready for what will happen when they continue on their way to Jerusalem, where Jesus will complete the work of redemption that he came to accomplish. And that's the theme that we've been seeing in chapter 18 of the Gospel according to Matthew. Jesus, who will build his church, is preparing those who will be the leaders in the church, in fact, the church itself, how they should live, how they should act, what they should look like as the people of the new covenant, those who have a new way of thinking because of the indwelling spirit, those who have a new orientation because they've entered the kingdom of heaven, those who have a new way of living because indeed they have met the living one. And over the past several weeks, I think we've found this to be a challenging chapter. The Lord has given some very hard but very direct, very necessary teaching about how the gospel is to be lived out and applied among those who claim his name. And as we've seen, there's something there for all of us. And as I mentioned last week, because we've had such rich time of discussion in the word, but also in our connection groups and the conversations that have gone on, we thought we'd take another week. And today we're going to have just a summarizing approach to Matthew 18. We're just going to take a 33,000 foot look over the chapter and then as we get towards the end of the chapter, we're going to come down and come down and come closer and look more and more at the whole issue of forgiveness. And we touched on it last week. We touched on it the week before. But today we're going to get very practical. And what is a way of practicing forgiveness? What does it look like in our daily lives? What does it look like in our ministries? How can we apply that which we have so richly received? And so we begin with how Jesus reminds us of what is the important element, the important characteristic of, of those who belong to Jesus, and that is humility. He begins with that in chapter 18. It's something that carries all the way through, that humility is important. It's an important characteristic of what it means to be a Christian. It's necessary in our relationship before God. It's necessary in our self-awareness of who we truly are before a holy God. It's necessary in our interactions one with another. And so, as I said, we're just going to summarize Matthew 18. Now, I list here verses 1 to 35. I'm not going to read the whole chapter, but I am going to read portions of it so that we, get it. we remind ourselves of what the different points were throughout this chapter, and then we'll begin to look at what a summary is for this chapter. So, I do invite you to stand as I read from portions of Matthew 18 and as we hear from God through his holy word. And this truthful word says, At that time the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. 
See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. Then the master summoned him and said, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, and should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? Then in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father would do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This is the word of the Lord. Let us receive it for edification this morning. Please be seated. And let us pray. Father, we are mindful this morning of how blessed we are because of your goodness shown to us in so many ways. We're also mindful this morning of how needy we are to learn in an ever-deepening manner how to apply those blessings in our lives, especially to those around us. So, Father, come and be our teacher this morning. Guide us in these moments. Lead us by your Spirit that we might see things in your Word that will challenge and direct and reorient our thinking and our actions. Father, we want to meet with you, the living God, this morning through your word. So teach us, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. So you're going to follow along in a sermon outline, but we're going to do a flyover over each section. We're just going to take it one section at a time. Take notes as you can. Probably at points I'm going to say more notes or give more notes than you're able to record. So you may, in fact, want to go back and look at this during the week with your Bible and notebook open and take deeper notes. But let's go ahead and get started. Our first major point coming from verses 1 to 6 is humility is the key to greatness. Humility is the key to greatness. The chapter begins, as we've seen, with the disciples coming back to Galilee with with Jesus after they've had this wonderful experience on the Mount of Transfiguration. And they begin to jockey among themselves about who should have the number two position, about who will take over after Jesus dies and goes back to heaven. And so they're saying, it'll be me, it'll be me, and they're trying to puff themselves up. And Jesus has to remind them, you're not all that. The problems start when we begin to think higher of ourselves than is warranted. He has just said that humility is what is necessary, not to make ourselves great, but to see that God is great, that we are needy, that we must bow before him and depend upon him as children depend upon their parents. And we saw that in that time, children did not have great value. Their value was found only in the fact that they were provided for by the family. That a child has faith for life and sustenance from its family. And in a similar manner then, if we want to enter the kingdom of heaven, it is because we have this dependency, this attitude of submission and expectation that God alone will take care of us and protect us and provide for us. And that is our only hope apart from our own efforts. We have no hope in our own efforts. So in our hopelessness and our helplessness, we turn to him. Only those, Jesus reminds us, who humble themselves before God, admitting their need, admitting their incapacity, are the ones who will experience true greatness as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. But we are reminded that the Christian is to be childlike, not childish. 
A childlike faith shows itself in humble dependence upon God for everything. It's that childlike faith that brings us to heaven, for we find that Jesus is a worthy Savior. But we must never allow that childlike faith to transition into a childish faith which seeks its own good and bends in on itself and wants everything to be done according to its own ways in an egocentric and self-absorbed manner. And we need to take the warnings then that are all over the New Testament of believers, at least believers in name, who act more like they are still of the world than of those who have been transitioned from the world into the kingdom of heaven who have received the new birth through the Holy Spirit of God. And Jesus is reminding us from the beginning of Matthew 18 that we should not take ourselves so seriously, for we're the needy ones, but we should be serious about the things of God. We should seek his glory over personal ambition, seek the good of what he is doing over our personal plans and ambitions. And he reminds us then that with humility that we have received or we have shown to God and have received from God, so we are to receive and not deceive. As God sends people to us, as he is the one that is stirring and the one that is calling and the one that is saving and the one that is giving the new birth and the one that is causing people to be forgiven of their sins. He calls us to receive them and enfold them for they're now part of the family of God. But don't put obstacles in the way. Don't mislead them or don't abuse them or don't give wrong teaching or don't look at them as somehow something just that's in the way, but rather someone that we walk with along the way to show them the way because Jesus has come and done the same for us. For the warning is stark. That great big grinding stone that was used to crush grain Jesus uses that illustration of being cast around our neck and thrown into the depths of the sea. And so in this first major point, humility then is having a right perspective of who we are. Having a right perspective of who God truly is. And having a proper understanding of the relationship between the two. So humility should be the mark of the believer. A humble recognition that apart from the grace and mercy of Christ, we have nothing. But in Christ, we have everything. And because we have everything and have become more like Christ, who is an example of humility, we can go out and show similar behavior. That's the main point of verses 1 to 6. In verses 7 to 9, Jesus is telling us to dealing with sin, but doing so comes with a cost. Think of the cost. We've already sung about it in song this morning. We've seen it in Scripture, the cost that it took for God to deal with our sin. He sent his son to leave the glories of heaven, to come and live among us for 30 plus years, to live complete righteousness and complete obedience to the law. And on the cross, God pours out his wrath against sin because he's a holy God and a just God. But not only does he punish, he also provides the solution. He is both just and the justifier. And so in Christ then, as he was hanging on a cross, suffering the agonies of what we did to him, he cries out, te telestai, the Greek word that says it is finished. That's our position in Christ. If we're in Christ, we are declared not guilty, we're declared righteous. That's our position, but in our practice, we have to become, in our actual behavior, we need to become what we are in our practice, because sin continues to to plague us. We continue to deal with overcoming our sin nature, overcoming the bad habits that we have learned, overcome the bad ways of speaking and doing and thinking and planning that we're all affected with. And so in this humility that we need to have before God, we have to have that with ourselves as we deal with sin and as we deal with other believers. And so we are said, do not mislead. Yes, because sin is in the world, we live in a fallen state, sin will come. Sin is happening. Just read any newspaper, watch any news program. And then the cry on underneath it should just say, sin is real and active in the world. But don't be the one through whom the sin comes. Don't be the one who tempts others to turn away from the ways of God. Don't be the one who provokes believers or invokes reactions and emotions that cannot be honoring to the Lord. Jesus deals with sin, but he also deals with those who lead others into sin. And so we're reminded that young believers look to older believers and say, How, what does this walk of Jesus look like? 
and we should be providing a good example of showing them how to go deeper in the word, how to pray, how to share our faith, how to live in harmony one with another. And so are we being that good example? Are we led by the Spirit of God to walk in a way that is honoring to Him? We're not to mislead. And not only do we not mislead, but we need to deal decisively with sin. So Jesus uses very graphic language in verses 7 to 9. And of course, this is a a Hebrew expression. It's an idea of getting rid of that which is the source of sin. But what he makes clear is that it's better to have less in this life and grow in true holiness than to have it all and lose out in eternity. What is it that's tempting us to sin? Get rid of it. And don't use things to tempt others into sin. Get rid of them. It is better to pay a minor cost now in getting rid of the causes of sin than face the consequences before a holy God. For there are people that can give their whole lives and it can be unveiled that they really just loved their stuff. And we don't want to be those people. We want it to be shown on the last day that our hearts were pure before God, that we truly did love Him, we truly did want to serve Him and use all that he has given us for his purposes and his glory. And so this humility that Jesus calls us to is necessary for us to understand again who we are and our need of a savior and causing us then to look out for one another. It's the call of all of us in the church as we have been summoned by Christ and we come into the family of God and we're in the kingdom of heaven that we now have citizenship responsibilities one towards another to encourage one another to faith and good deeds, to pray for one another, to help one another, to confess our sins to one another because we need one another and to deal properly with sin, turn decisively from it, get rid of those sources in our lives that would cause our hearts to turn away from the living God. That's verses 7 to 9. As we get to verses 10 through 14, and I hope you have your Bibles open in front of you so you can just follow what I'm going through here. But in verses 10 to 14, the main point is bring back straying new believers. Jesus is bringing these ones into the kingdom, these new ones who believe. They have this childlike faith, but we should not be the ones who cause them to sin. No, we're told not to despise them, a very strong word. We're to see them as a blessing, not as a burden. This requires in constant awareness of what's going on in our hearts, in our minds, that we'd forsake these things and confess and turn away from those things and welcome and receive and enfold and not get tripped over things that we like. Oftentimes Christians get so animated, they get so emotional about secondary matters, about things that they've created, about things that they want to do, about things that are important to them, but maybe not considering the larger needs of the body of Christ. And so when we pass on those things that are truly in Christ, we need to make sure it's focusing on those things which uphold the character of God, which uphold the glory of Jesus Christ, which confess him as Lord of the church, which emphasize our status as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. For our ultimate home is not here. And so our ultimate allegiances and our ultimate planning and our ultimate emphases and efforts need to be to promote Jesus as our king and the church as the proclaimer of the kingdom. And so we need to be careful how we teach new believers because they can be easily misled and go astray. If they're neglected, if they're not taken care of, they can wander off like sheep are prone to wander. If we despise them by saying, oh, they're too much work, they want to bring change to what we're doing, we should never see a believer in Jesus Christ as more of a burden than as a blessing. Because God clearly tells us here that he does not desire that any of these little ones should perish. And if that's his heart, then our heart should be that we want to bring everyone to fullness of fruition in Christ. Paul said it was his life ambition that he dealt with all of his energies to present every man complete in Christ. Every man mature in Christ. That's Colossians 1, 27 to 29. He worked hard for it. He laid aside his own life and ambitions that that would happen. So we must be aware that people can wander away. So we need to take care to keep them in the flock. If they've gone astray, perhaps because of ignorance, because they've run after a wrong shepherd, we need to go and get them. And again, this is a church-wide responsibility. We are our brother's keeper in Christ. We are to look out for one another in Christ. It's a new redeemed community. 
The church is a community of the redeemed, not a collection of rugged individuals. It is Christ who is redeeming us and plucking us out of the kingdoms of men to bring us into the kingdom of heaven, into the kingdom of his son. And as a result then, that becomes the new priority, the new family, the new focus where our new energies should be spent. And repent, uh, rejoice then over believers who have gone astray but who repent and come back. So let's pray over them. Let's get them. Let's rejoice when they return. Let's enfold them. Let's properly instruct them. Let's help them grow up in this community that they're now part of. And as we get down to verse 15 to 20, Jesus reminds us the view of sin in the church. It's interesting that we need to perhaps have a re-understanding of what actually is happening in the gospel. The gospel where God, as holy, declares us just and righteous in Christ. And he saves us. But he doesn't save us unto ourselves. He saves us unto Christ. And he saves us and puts us in his body. That means we belong to him, not just ourselves and God, but all of us that are involved in the new covenant community that we all belong to each other. And so we do need to belong to each other. And many of us have found that that can be hard. Community life is hard. But the fact remains the Bible gives no room for the Lone Ranger Christian. There are some that claim that they can worship God on the golf course or worship God on the lake or worship God in the woods. And they might be able to, but that's not what they're called to. They're called to be part of the gathered saints of God because they have been plucked out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And they need to meet because that's how they can live out in community. That's how they can learn about the whole counsel of God. That's how they can learn to walk together as brother and sister and apply the numerous commandments in the, in the New Testament. When the Holy Spirit gets a hold of our lives, as he does in our conversion, he indwells within us. And as he indwells within us, he's creating the desire that we have to be with the people of God. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is here to glorify Jesus. How is Jesus glorified? As his people grow in community and in maturity and in growth, he's building his church. And so there should be then, it's the natural expectation, I would say the supernatural expectation. If we are in Jesus Christ, the spirit that is within us pulls us, tugs us, draws us, compels us to regularly be with the people of God. And there are desires that he gives us that can only be satisfied as we gather with the people of God. And so let's make that our priority. Let's make that what we want to do because that's the way that we will grow in maturity. But as we live in community with one another, we brush up against each other. We bump into each other. We hurt each other. We sin against each other. We misunderstand each other. We misuse our gifts and talents and abilities. And so there's sin. And sin must be dealt with. Because sin is affecting the unity. The sin is affecting the community. Sin hurts the sinner, and sin hurts the one who is sinned against. And so just as we have been forgiven in Christ, so we offer that same disposition of forgiveness and mercy and tenderness towards others already with the a priori, if you will, the decided ahead of time attitude of I'm ready to forgive. I'm ready to offer mercy. I'm ready to work this out. But sometimes it doesn't happen the way we want. And so God, Jesus gives us a process. He says, keep it private at first. We talked at length about that. If it's dealing with sin, go to a person. This is different than differences of opinion or contrary thoughts about how a program should look. In this going to one another, lay down your weapons ahead of time. Go with the attitude of reconciliation and seeking to work with one another, not with an accusatory approach, because humility is more effective than hostility. But if that doesn't work, it doesn't always work. Move it along wisely. If we find those that are not willing to listen to counsel, bring along other witnesses, and after meeting there's no repentance and there's no 
a desire to turn away from sin, bring two or three more, eventually bring it to the church. This is painful. But it's necessary if we are to walk and grow in this common unity, this community that we have in Christ. And it's ultimately an expression of love. The writer of Hebrews says that God loves those who disappoint. He disciplines them so that they'll become more like his son. And so discipline, properly done, is this loving act of pointing out someone's sin, loving them enough to plead with them to repent, and loving them enough and loving the body enough to say, we need to put you out of fellowship until in such a time you're ready to repent and return. And along the way then, there needs to be a respect for what is happening. Loving the church and respecting the elders. Do we love the church enough to actually work through the process? We said at the beginning that Jesus doesn't save us unto ourselves. He saves us unto himself so that we are in Christ. And as he saves us in Christ, he places us into his body, which is the church. And he's the head of the church. And he's the one that appoints leaders in the church. And he says, I've got a process in place. Follow me. Even if you have to go through a difficult process. Because ultimately the church belongs to him. And all of us give an accounting for how we act in the church because he's our Lord. And so we have to deal with it. Do we love God enough to have the hard conversation? And all along the while, while this process is playing out, as there's great prayer going on, as there's interaction, as there is seeking, as there's pleading, as there's cries for, for reconciliation, Jesus promises that he is watching. He says, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am. Again, he said, this is not a prayer meeting per se. This is a council bringing discipline and instruction according to the law of God, which requires that there be two or three witnesses to bring about something that God is involved in or to respect his law. He promises to be in that process in a special way to guide, to protect, to lead, to teach, to instruct the church that is his. And along the way, then he says, look, I'm going to watch over my church, and I'm going to do it through the leaders that I've given, but ultimately, because my father promises to protect the church. Do we have a holy respect for the church that Christ is building? The Apostle Paul knew about these kind of examples. He wrote two letters to the church in Corinth with all kind of a sundry sins that they were involved in. And there's nothing new under the sun. The same sins that are there in that book are also in what we see in the church in large measure today. And Paul is writing letters to them and saying, deal with this, get rid of that, deal with this, get rid of that. Because the church is being divided. And in the midst of that, as he talks about who they are, he gives a warning. that, That not only would Jesus guide, guard, and protect the church, listen to the warning if anyone destroys god's temple god will destroy him for god's temple is holy and you are that temple so the apostle paul loved the people of corinth enough to tell them the truth to say look this isn't a game with god deal with sin that's in the church and in their case they dealt with the sinning brother second corinthians says they dealt with him so severely they actually have to tone it down and welcome him back But we need to recognize that that still is a reality of showing humility before God to the point where we'll do the hard things. Humility about who we truly are and humility in dealing with one another. That's all the summary, more or less, of the first four sections of this book. Now, we're going to spend the rest of our time looking at the last section, which we started last week, and I'm going to take a little different approach than just going verse by verse. I really want to just have a time of teaching this morning and understanding forgiveness and how to live it out. And so we get to our final and major point that will take us through the rest of our time. Forgiveness is the Christian way. Forgiveness is the Christian way. This is a hard subject. I think we would all agree. But as the surveys have shown, it's something we need to grow in, at least the church writ large. Because if it's true that one in four self-proclaiming evangelicals say there is someone they will not forgive, then it shows the need that we have to be able to practice forgiveness, to learn what it is so that we can be a testifying community to the grace of God. And so in this parable that takes up the rest of Matthew 18, Jesus illustrates the greatness of the forgiveness we have in Christ. 
and commands us to do the same. So we're going to deal with some tough things this morning, but on a very practical level, what is, what is forgiveness and what does it look like? But first, let's look at the effects of unwillingness to forgive. We're all really clever. We come preloaded with our reasons why we can be the exception to forgiving somebody else. We all have our ideas and perspectives that somehow set us apart from the need to forgive others. Well, you don't know what that person did to me. She keeps doing the same thing over and over again. He doesn't even care that he keeps hurting people. That was so painful I could never forgive. We've got all kinds of excuses that we build up. As you know, I had the privilege of spending a number of years in the Middle East where honor and shame are the critical issues of the day. And people would do whatever it can to uphold their honor so that they're not shamed. But I think at a fundamental and deep level, we're not so different. We like to protect our honor and our name and our reputation, and we don't want to be shamed. One day I was having a conversation with a young Egyptian man, and we were ta- I was sh- sharing the gospel with him and talking about the differences between the Christian gospel and the Islamic religion. And I was talking about the greatness of God and forgiving sinners. He had a hard time with that concept, and he said this, If anyone does something to me or to my brother or my family, even after 30 years, I will not forget. Explains a lot of what's going on in the Middle East, the fact that they don't know how to forgive, they don't know how to forget because it just perpetuates itself from one generation to the next. But we need to be careful because perhaps we're tempted to be the same way. We make up our excuses, and they're not very good, but we try to build our lives upon them as if somehow they were good. So why... Should we want to forgive others? What are some things that happen if we do not forgive? And in this, I've done some research on just what we see based on conversations and research with psychologists, psychotherapists, doctors, counselors, uh, and others involved in the medical field, that there are actually physical effects of unforgiveness. In many studies, we can trace the fact that there are Certain maladies that underneath have an unforgiving spirit. Oftentimes, migraine headaches, high blood pressure, ulcers, depression, insomnia can have an underlying cause of an unforgiving spirit. I was listening to a doctor speak on this subject a number of years ago. He was a medical missionary doctor, and he said, we're even starting to see the beginnings of evidence that certain types of cancer may have at its root an unforgiving spirit because of the toxin that's produced from a heart that will not forgive. But we know ourselves well, don't we? We've all encountered that person, that event, that thing that hurt us. And we start to think about it, and what happens? The heart starts beating a little faster. The blood pressure starts to go up. We start to clench our fists, maybe, clench our teeth. Our body's producing more adrenaline because it's a defensive fight-or-flight response. Our voice tightens up, and anger wells up within us. And this is creating this tremendous chemical reaction in our bodies that is not good for us. It affects how we think, how we talk, even how we sleep, or maybe will keep us from sleeping. Well, if there are physical effects, there are personal effects. Think of how God has created us. God has created us to be in relationship with him through the Lord Jesus Christ. He has placed us in his body to be recipients, if you will, of his blessings and mercies and graces and spiritual gifts and answered prayers. But because we belong to him, he has created us that we might be vessels through which his blessings will flow to others. That's what it means to be in the body of Christ. But if we clench up in our jaws and in our attitudes and in our hearts, We're also starting to clench up our spirit and our heart. We start blocking the blessings that God wants to pass through us to others. Blessings of grace and mercy and love and kindness and forgiveness. It affects our personal relationships. It affects how we think about others. Our hearts may grow cold. Our minds may grow angry. It's hard to love. It's hard to serve those against whom we harbor bitterness and resentment. It also might make us, after a while, difficult to be around because 
just being proverbially poked and the, the anger spills out. There are also spiritual effects. We may find it hard to read the Bible. We may find it hard to pray. We may find it hard to understand what is happening when we refuse to forgive other people. So if we have an unforgiving spirit, don't expect God to answer our prayers. Because he's already commanded us to confess our sins and to release things into his care and work and work and work and work. And this is true for all believers, but I give a special warning this morning to we who have the blessing of being husbands. We're called to be the spiritual leaders in our home. We're called to be the priests in our home. We're called to lead our families in the fear and admonition of the Lord. And as Peter is writing and talking about the proper way that God has structured the family and structured the world, look how he warns husbands. Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Understanding way. Showing honor to the women as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, co-heirs in Christ. And why? Why live with them in an understanding way? Why seeking to serve them in love? Why seeking to show them that Christ is worth it and leading them in the ways of Christ? So that your prayers may not be hindered. We could go on and on. <laughs> this is not an easy subject, but it's something we need to take head on. I think all of us want to have blessed marriages, blessed family relationships, blessed relationships. But we need to understand that sometimes we're holding things back just because of what we're doing. So we need to be reminded then, well, how does God forgive us? And that was one of the assignments I asked you to look at last week. Go ahead and look at the scriptures and think of the ways in which God has forgiven you in Christ. But we'll take a step back from that and we'll say, first of all, God commands us to forgive others. And now that puts us in a situation where if he is God and we are not, and that's true, and God commands something, what is our response to be? Negotiation? Swapping, conditional response, or just do what he commands. Paul says in Ephesians 4, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. And if we think of the ways that God in Christ has forgiven us, eternally, fully, completely, willingly, I'm going to make up a word, ongoingly, as a way of life, forgive as Christ has forgiven us. Secondly, if we have been forgiven by Christ, if you have met the living God and you have repented of your sins and you have entered into a relationship with him, the, the great blessing that we have, we want to keep. We want to continue to experience his smile upon our lives, the acceptance that we have in Christ. And so Jesus has given us a warning that there's a relationship between our ability to experience the joy of our own forgiveness and our willingness to forgive others. He says it right at the end of the section that gives us the, Lord prayer, the Lord's Prayer. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, then your heavenly Father will also not forgive you your trespasses. Now, we're justified in Christ, completely by his righteousness. So what Jesus is talking about here is, are we going to experience this ongoing fellowship with God? Are we going to actually show that we have been forgiven by God by expressing forgiveness and being willing to forgive others? Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who have trespassed against us. So it's a commandment. But I think we all want to enjoy all that we can have in Christ and so let's walk in fellowship with God, the Holy Spirit, and freely confess and freely forgive as opportunity is given. Because ultimately, forgiving sets us free. If we hang on to sin against another person, we're hurting ourselves. We're putting ourselves in a prison of our own making. But when we release them into God's hands, it sets us free. And we find the bitter spirit draining off our hearts and the angry thoughts draining off our minds. And we don't need to think in terms of getting revenge. We just apply the gospel. Because forgiveness demonstrates our faith in God. It says, I trust you, Father. I trust you to deal with the situation. 
You can handle it better than I can. I give it to you. It's no longer in my hands. That's that humble attitude that Jesus talks about from verse 1, that we would humbly just submit our needs of God to help us to live out his word. Now, directly from the parable in, in verses 21 to 35, there's at least three principles of forgiveness. There's many more. We need to push on because we've got a little bit more to cover. I may run just a little over time today, so I ask forgiveness ahead of time. <laughs> Freely, we are to forgive. 77 times in an unlimited manner. As often as they come and repent, we forgive. We're to do it immediately. We don't hang on to it. The first servant, when he was forgiven, he was forgiven immediately when he went to the master. This great debt that he owed, we saw it last week, he could never possibly repay it. But the master had mercy on him, and he was forgiven. But instead of immediately going out and forgiving the second servant, he went out and wanted his pound of flesh. And then Jesus concludes this chapter by saying we need to forgive deeply from the heart. And when we've forgiven, as we said last week, we do what God has done with us. He throws the ledger away. He no longer keeps track of sins against us. So let's not keep track of sins. He no longer keeps track of our sins against him, so let's not keep track of sins committed against us. That requires supernatural help. But we're indwelled by the Spirit of God. And we're given the Word of God. So we need to take, believe, and apply. For those of you that were not here last week, I just want to summarize this next section because the main thing I want to get to is what does this look like practically? Forgiveness is not forgetting. Sometimes we can't forget what has been done because of the damage that was caused. Forgiveness is not reconciliation. Though we desire to be reconciled, but sometimes there's not a willing party. Maybe someone has sinned grievously against you and now they're dead. Can't reconcile with a dead person. Forgiveness is not an admission that the other person was right, nor that the matter is important. If it was not important, it wouldn't matter. If the person was right, there was no sin. So this is what forgiveness is not, but what forgiveness is, is a response of mercy, an act of mercy towards one who sinned against us. We saw that clearly in the parable last week. So we're just summarizing what we took almost an hour to, to go over last week. Forgiveness is canceling the debt that someone owes us. Just like the master canceled the debt. When we are sinned against or when we sin against someone, there is a cost. Cost of reputation, cost of time, cost of money, cost of whatever it might be. And so there's a cost. Forgiveness is canceling that debt. Abandoning my rights to get even, laying it in the hands of God and trusting him with the results my friends this is not an academic exercise this is part of what it means to grow in our spiritual lives as Christians it's what it means to practice becoming more like the Lord Jesus Christ as he has done it for us on April 30 1998 I had to learn in a deeper way what this means I had just finished my spring semester on my second year at seminary was looking forward to having a day off with my wife and then two kids and then study for the weekend and get ready for final exams it was on a Thursday evening and at 7.15 the phone rang it was my mom through sobbing tears, she told me that my sister had just been killed in a car accident. Sherry was my only sister, <laughs> and I loved her dearly. How could she be gone? I had just spoken to her a few days before. And in the days that followed, I struggled with her loss. You see, she was killed by the negligence of another driver. There was standing rush hour traffic, and she was at the back of the pack, and a woman came screaming up and slammed into the back of her, throwing her into the windshield and out of the car. She never even hit the brakes. She was messing around with things in the back seat. 
My brother-in-law decided that because this was a wrongful death, he would file a wrongful death suit to get help with raising his now, well, uh, my, my nephew was 18 months at the time, and he's now a, a single father. And so they brought it to court, and the other family, under advice of their lawyers, would not comment on the death, would not make any admission of wrongdoing. As the paperwork was all presented, there was a financial settlement that was agreed to. And once the settlement was agreed to, this family went out and filed for bankruptcy and wiped out all the debt. My family never received a thing. And I struggled with bitterness, and I struggled with loss. I especially felt bad for my parents. All they wanted to hear was a, was a, was a uh, forgive me. That's all they wanted to hear was an apology. They didn't want anything else. They never got it. And over the course of that next few weeks, anger is building up in my heart. And finally one night as I can't sleep, I just went up and went into the, got up and went into the other room. And Forgiveness is not forgetting. How could I forget? My sister's gone. Forgiveness is not reconciliation because the other party... Refuse to have any contact with us afterwards. Forgiveness is not admitting that they're right, because they clearly weren't. But forgiveness is offering mercy to those who are in debt. Forgiveness is giving up the right to get even. Forgiveness is placing it into the hands of a loving and trustworthy God. And so that night, through tears, I prayed and told the Father... I forgive this family, and I began to pray for their success. And many times over the years, I've prayed that they would come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. I have yet to meet them. But if I were, it would be an offer of mercy and forgiveness, praying for their well-being. Because that's what forgiveness does. It cancels the debt. It puts it in the hands of God. And when I think back over my sister's life and what could have been, there, yes, there are still tears that come, but there's gratitude for what I had. And then I pray for the family that caused this. You may think that you cannot forgive someone. You can. But you have to lean into a powerful God who will lead you by the hand and say, trust me, and just place it in my hands. He was willing to send his son for us. Now he's asking for us to be willing to apply that same thing with the son. In the bulletins that you have, I hope you picked one up when you came in today, I want you to pull out now this worksheet that is called Guidelines for Practicing Forgiveness. There are more copies available in the, in the foyer if you didn't get one. And in our closing moments today, I just want us to look briefly at this and I want you to take it home. And I want you to spend time alone with the Lord during the week. With your Bible open, with your lip praying, your heart responsive to the Lord, and just go through this exercise. There's nothing magical about it, but it's a practical way for us to express faith to God. Do this with God this week. Think of the hurts the anger, the frustrations, the bitterness that's in your heart. And begin to list them down below. And just maybe all you do is uh, put a little sign, a little letter, a number, a date. This is just between you and the Lord. You both will know what you're talking about as you indicate what that is. But then act upon what we know to be true. We're called to forgive. So in this exercise, point three, it says, for each point on your list, perform a specific act of forgiveness. Do this as an act of your will. You decide to obey what God has told you to do. Your emotions that have built up over the years are going to balk. And at that point, there's going to be a spiritual struggle in your soul about whether you can justify hanging on to your anger or you can let it go. Let your will reign over your emotions and say, I will do this as God leads me. And then pray and release that person, that event, that situation into the hands of God. Your emotions will, might struggle. This may be painful. There may be tears. 
and commit it into God's hands and say, Lord, because I trust you, because I love you, because I know you're in control, I release it into your care. And then be ready just to walk with him in whatever he may indicate you need to do. Now, once you've done that, put a little date next to each number as a reminder to yourself that on that date you responded to the Lord and you obeyed him and as a reminder to the evil one because as we struggle in walking with God that lying voice of the enemy is going to come in no this is too easy get revenge go after them this is not enough this is too easy and you have to be able to say I obeyed the Lord Jesus Christ on such and such a date in this situation in the name of Jesus, enemy flee. And walk in victory. Just so you know, this is an exercise I've done many times in my life. I still find it helpful at times. Because I need to bow the knee before God when he's pressing in on me against something and listen. And so, if you mark this one up and you want another copy, there's more copies available in the foyer as you go out at the welcome desk. But this is so serious that I want you to make it a priority this week. Because wouldn't it be great if we'd come back next week as we're celebrating Thanksgiving with a little extra spring in our step, a little extra joy in our hearts, a little extra peace in our minds because we've obeyed and walked with Christ and done what he asked us to do. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that ultimately Jesus alone is perfect. And so it's leaning upon the person of Jesus that we do now. Because we need what only he can give so that we can apply what he commands us to do. Father, the flesh is very active. The devil's very active. Accusations form quickly on our hearts, on our tongues. Father, help us to resist those temptations and to just simply obey you as we go through this process. And as we do, Father, would you strengthen us? Would you encourage us? And I pray, Father, that all of us in this room would have our burdens lifted this week as we bow before you and as we forgive. And help us, Father, to learn and to walk in that rich forgiveness. And so, Lord, direct us this week as only you can so that you will be lifted up, so that you will be glorified, so that we will be enriched spiritually, relationally, emotionally, and become more and more like our Lord Jesus Christ. And so to that end we pray. For your ultimate glory and for our ultimate good. In Jesus' name.